0: We want to thank you for listening to audio from The Hill Church. We exist to glorify God by declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ through our lives together. If you would like to learn more about our ministry or donate online, please visit us at thehillsd.org. Well, good evening. Warm, warm gospel greetings to you all in Christ Jesus. It is a great joy for me to always open up the word of God, but particularly to be here uh, with you all at the Hill Church, and I look forward to following and treasuring Jesus together with you all. If I haven't met you, I would love the opportunity. So would you please turn with me in your Bibles to Second Corinthians chapter five, verses eleven through twenty-one. 2 Corinthians chapter five, verses eleven through twenty-one. The title for the sermon will be "Ambassadors for Christ." Last week, we looked at the crucifixion, death, and burial of Jesus, soon to come, His glorious resurrection. I thought it would be fitting to speak about evangelism tonight. So please pray with me, and we'll begin. Father God in heaven, we come humbly to you in Jesus' name. We thank You, Lord, for this day. We thank You for saving us and calling us to Yourself. Lord, we ask that You would set our minds' attention and our hearts' affection upon You. We ask tonight that people will come to Christ and that believers will become more like Christ. Father God, we ask for help, help by Your Spirit in the reading of Your Word, the hearing of Your Word, the preaching of Your Word, and the applying of Your Word. May Jesus Christ Be exalted in the proclamation of your word and in our lives. In his name, amen. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 11 through 21. The text reads, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God. And I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but... ...giving you cause to boast about us... ...so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance... ...and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us... ...because we have concluded this, that one has died for all... ...therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live God making his appeal through us. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So reads the Word of the Living God. Let's go back to the beginning. How did you come to faith in Jesus Christ? For me, God graciously used the witness of my parents and the faithful preaching of the gospel in, in His church, which brought me to read my Bible as a young sixth grader, specifically within the Gospel of Matthew. And it's there that God showed me the beauty of Christ as Savior and need for Jesus before God as a sinner. He brought me to trust in Jesus and to look to Him in faith alone, and He has kept me by His grace ever since, even to this very moment. And I'm sure that's many of us here. The faithful witness and evangelistic words of Christians in the church, being the church, praying, singing, preaching the gospel, loving one another, and to make disciples, which God uses to save our souls, reconciling us to Him through faith alone in Christ. And as the church, the pillar in the support of the truth, we are gospel people. We are about the gospel, the joyful message from leads to salvation through Christ alone. And evangelism is the preaching and telling of that gospel teaching the gospel with the aim of persuading sinners to repent and to believe upon Christ. In evangelism, my friends, we are beggars telling other beggars where we have found bread in the Lord Jesus Christ. In the letter of 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul is defending his apostolic ministry and in that presents the Christ-centered view of ministry which prioritizes Jesus' gospel. And in the text before us, Paul not only explains the gospel, the message of reconciliation, but provides motivation for our mission as the church, making disciples of all nations through the proclamation of the gospel. So the central point of this text is that God has entrusted the church with the message of reconciliation, Therefore, we must proclaim the gospel together as motivated ambassadors for Jesus. This text teaches that God has entrusted the church with the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we must proclaim the gospel together as motivated ambassadors for Jesus. And we don't do this driven by guilt, but gladly motivated by the glory of Jesus The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world is worthy of his riches. To see sinners come to him and to direct their words towards him. Paul gives us motivations for our missions in this text. And those motivations will provide our outline in looking at this passage. Motivation number one, verses 11 through 13, the fear of the Lord. Verses 14 through 17, the love of the Lord. In verses 18 through 21, the stewardship from the Lord, the fear of the Lord, the love of the Lord, and the stewardship from the Lord. So God has entrusted the church with the message of reconciliation, moving us to proclaim the gospel together as motivated ambassadors for Jesus. And the motivation towards that end is the fear of the Lord. Please look with me to verse 11. Paul says, Therefore, Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. See Paul begins here with therefore because in the because the following verses flow from the preceding context in verses one through ten, Paul writes upon the appropriate Christian law for our glorified bodies where we'll sin no more and look like Christ while calling us to remain of good courage, knowing is with the Lord and that we are to walk by faith and not by sight here aiming to chiefly please Christ. And pleasing Christ is our chief aim because of what Paul says in verse 10. For we must all appear be here before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body whether good or evil. So the Apostle Paul in every single one of us will stand before Christ, fully accountable to Him. And Christ will evaluate believers' lives. And this judgment is not a matter of condemnation or, nor dealing with sin. There is no condemnation for those who in Christ Jesus. And our, and our sin was dealt with on the cross. This is a matter of faithfulness to the Lord and in us following Him in faith. And the purpose for this judgment is for eternal rewards and praise from God where God really crowns his own work of grace shown in our life. So by understanding our full accountability to Christ, Paul says we therefore know the fear of the Lord. And we continually live in this fear of the Lord. You see, fear is a strong motivation for so much of life. Political parties use it. You see it on the news almost daily. People have a fear of failure and that moves them to actually succeed. People have a fear of losing, particularly athletes, and that brings them to train harder and to most oftentimes win. And the Bible tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. And it motivates us to shun evil and to live for the Lord and compelling others, this text indicates, to point them to the Lord, rather than wasting our lives in self-consumption. The fear of the Lord should bring us to remember that we are pointers, not the point. That belongs to Jesus. He is the point of it all. In this fear of the Lord here, it's not being afraid of Christ like a bad dream, but looking to Him with reverential awe and respect, as we should the Lord King and Judge before whom we'll stand. Notice Paul says, knowing the fear of the Lord. This isn't a momentary fear or something that's fleeting or something that only comes at night. It's constant, it's continual, and it's always in full effect. We often appropriately so talk about loving the Lord. And we should, it's the greatest commandment. But let me ask you this question, do you fear the Lord? Do you have reverence for who he is? You should, because you'll stand before him. Paul says, "Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others." And contextually, Paul is persuading others towards the integrity of his ministry, but that's to the end of gospel proclamation. You notice in the Bible, Paul says, "We persuade others." This is a community endeavor. The fear of the Lord thrives amongst the people of the Lord. But the fear of the Lord motivates us to persuade others towards believing the gospel. Evangelism is teaching the gospel with the aim to persuade the lost. In the gospel, it's not an opinion blog. That's just take it or leave it. Like it, love it, or hate it. The gospel is the power of God to save those who believe. And we must proclaim it in all its veracity. in church, we must be on the same page, laboring side by side for the advancement of the gospel. So Christian here today, with the fear of the Lord, persuade others towards the gospel, towards believing the gospel. And this means having real heart-to-heart conversations with people. It means actually reasoning with the lost, to hear the gospel and to respond to the gospel. We have to set the plainly and convincingly. Notice in the text it says we persuade others as well, not manipulate others. We do not compromise the gospel. We seek to engage people, not entertain people. We don't, we, we don't not mention sin or promise material gain, but tell people to repent and to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, and God will change their hearts. Believers, we have to show loss, whether families, f- whether it's family or friends or strangers, we have to show the loss. That it takes more faith to believe this all came from nothing. To believe in God. We have to persuade them that you can't just say Jesus is a nice God. He is either a liar, a lunatic, or he is Lord of all of the universe. We have to persuade them that you were made for God, whether you know it or not. And you're made for worship. But apart from God, you worship sinfully, suppressing the truth of His existence. And the true object of worship is Jesus Christ. And your heart will be restless until you find your rest in Him. We must persuade them of the truth of Christ and call them to repent and to believe upon Him. We must persuade them, for we have the truth for all of life's major questions. And we see this throughout the ministry of Paul, particularly the book of Acts. In Acts 18.4, it says that Paul reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade the Jews and Greeks. In Acts 26, we see Paul in the midst of persuading the judge concerning Christ. In Acts 28, house arrest, he's persuading people concerning the truth of Jesus Christ. But it's in the fear of the Lord that he had this motivation in this sense of, of being compelled to persuade others about Jesus, leaving the results to God. We plant seeds and he makes it grow. But Paul had the fear of the Lord and he knew that all people will stand before the Lord. You see, believers will stand before him for evaluations and eternal rewards. But unbelievers will stand before Jesus too. Every single unbeliever you know in your life will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. And not for evaluation of life, but for eternal judgment for their sin and unbelief. The fear of the Lord says you should be either persuading others concerning Jesus, or you need to be persuaded concerning Christ as Savior and Lord, because you will stand before Him our great judge, who is also the Savior. Paul continues in verse 11 and says, But what we are is known to God. hope it is known known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about the outward appearance, not about what is in the heart. Paul is saying here that God knows who we are. Paul in his ministry associates and that he's telling them that we're about the gospel we're not puffing ourselves up to you we're trying to give you confidence concerning our gospel ministry and walking in the fear of the lord necessitates living in integrity before the lord and in verse 13 paul says for if we are beside ourselves for god if we are in our right mind it is for you his point here is that we live all out for god and the good of others you see gospel ministry is other-centered, not self-centered. And the best thing we can do for others is to persuade them towards the truth of the gospel so that they may come to Christ. And how great of a time is now, this COVID season, where people are seeing that they are not in control of their lives, and death and mortality is right before them. They need to hear the truth of who Christ is. So we see from verses 11 through 13 that Paul's reverence for the Lord motivated him and his ministry partners to a continual readiness to persuade others about the Lord and his gospel truth. And in view of this reality, practically, church, we must resolve to fear the Lord. We must resolve to fear the Lord. And Tony Evans defined the fear of the Lord as, Taking the Lord seriously. Taking the Lord seriously. We need to fear the Lord, to take Christ seriously as Lord, as Savior. Only name under heaven by which people can be saved. As King and as the Judge. Church, we must daily remember and remind each other that we'll stand before Christ when this life is over. And we have to see life through the lens of standing before His throne and let that move us to evangelism. We should take Christ seriously for who He is as the only Savior. And when we do that, it's unloving and selfish to remain silent about Him. We must resolve to fear the Lord. And two, we must resolve to die to the fear of man. Oftentimes, Christians don't evangelize because we have the fear of man. We are afraid that we don't know enough or that we'll be rejected or something like that. But taking Jesus seriously moves you to telling about Jesus. Fearing man will always keep you quiet. But fearing man is really just self-preservation and selfish. And it's not the heart of gospel ministry. So what that you're uncomfortable for a few minutes or seconds telling someone about Christ? It's so worth it considering their soul hangs in eternal balance. We must... Point people to the Lord apart from the fear of man. We can't be slaves to the moment when it comes to their souls, but live in view of eternity, fearing the Lord and persuading others, because they need Him. And it should be our aim to please Him in every arena of life. So remembering that God has entrusted the church with the message of reconciliation Therefore, we must proclaim the gospel together as motivated ambassadors for Christ. We've seen the first motivation towards this end, the fear of the Lord. and Now we come to the second, the love of the Lord. Verses 14, Paul says, for the love of Christ controls us. Let's pause there. And we have to ask the question of this text, is this our love for Christ or Christ's love for us that Paul is talking about? In the best interpretation and contextually speaking, it's clear that Paul is speaking about the love that Jesus has for us, which controls us. The love that Jesus possesses for us. The love that went to the cross. Because there's no greater love than he who lays his life down for his friends. And believer, today, I just want to encourage you to look to the infinite humility of Christ who took on flesh. Look to the glory of Christ in the giving up of Himself. Look to His resurrection and His intercession for us in this very moment. And say with Paul, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Behold the beauty of His love in the gospel and the truth of Scripture. Charles Spurgeon said, Abide hard by the love of Jesus' wounds. Samuel Rutherford said, "Every day we may see something new in Christ. His love has neither end nor." In end. Ephesians 3:19 says, "The breadth, the length, the height and the depth of Christ's love surpasses all knowledge. Trying to grasp Christ's love apart from the illumination of the Holy Spirit is like trying to grasp the Pacific Ocean with just your two arms. His love is that abounding and real. And if you're here today looking for love in all the wrong places, you found your end of the hunt. Look no further than the living love of Jesus. He is the end of your search and longing. This is the love that Paul writes controls us. A paraphrase translation, Christ's love leaves with no choice than to live for what Paul means when he says that the love of Christ controls us, it means that his that that Jesus love is a pleasant pressure that produces action. His love compels; it confines and restricts us. In the picture, with the restriction effect of his love, is that Christ's love hems us in and surrounds us on all sides, not so that we'll do nothing in life or not be able to move but so that we'll do only what matters. Jesus' love controls us in such a way that we live the truth, not a waste. In other words, compelled by the love of Christ, we walk on the narrow road, guard distractions, the darkness, and the decay of this world. And Christ's love should also move us to pour out our lives for others to the glory of God, particularly in evangelism telling other people of this great love. F.F. Bruce said this, The love of Christ is the all-compelling power of life. Where love is the compelling power, there's no sense of strain, conflict, or bondage in doing what is right. The person compelled by the love of Jesus, empowered by His Spirit, does the will of God from the heart. Do you want to evangelize from the heart, my brother and sister? But then feast on the love of Jesus. It's too good and too undeserving to us sinners to be silent about it. Paul continues in verse 14, For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. Paul's concluding thought of Christ and his love is that Jesus died. He was crucified for all. And there's so much theology in that preposition for. It means that Jesus died, he was crucified instead of, or in the place of, all. You see, Jesus didn't die a martyr, nor just a good example. Jesus died as a substitute, a substitute redeemer. When Paul says all here, he doesn't mean that Christ died for all people from all time without exception, but all people without distinction. Not all people without exception, but all people without distinction. If Jesus died for all people as a substitute without exception, meaning all people from all time, that would mean universal salvation for all people in all time, because they can't be punished twice for their sins, Christ on the cross and then In hell, because of their unbelief. Jesus' death was definite. It accomplished redemption. Jesus' death did not make salvation possible. He purchased it for his sheep, for all who would believe. Jesus went to the cross with a specific and intentional love. The good shepherd laid down his life for his sheep. Jesus died for all without distinction, meaning all people from all tribes, Nations and tongues who would believe in him. But we don't know who God's elect are, which is why we preach the gospel to all people. But knowing that Jesus died for his sheep, for believers, that's why Paul says, Therefore, all have died. The all there is Christ's sheep. Paul is saying that Christ lovingly died as a a substitute for all who would believe in him. And now believers are made to be in union with Jesus And with Christ, we died as well. Our sins are washed away. And as Romans 6 says, we are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. In verse 15, Paul says, And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So Jesus in his love died for all without distinction, for all who would believe in him. And by dying for us, he bought us to live for him by his love. We're therefore fellow Christian to live as the redeemed, bought by Jesus' blood and for his glory. In a life compelled by the love of Christ, seen chiefly at the cross is a life lived for Christ, telling other people about Christ. Colossians 1.16 says, we were made for him. Colossians 3.4 says, He is our life. And Colossians 1.28 says, We proclaim Him. I you know this track star who said, I live to run, and I run to live. That's nice and that's fun. i gifted Him to be able to run, but there's so much better to live for in living for Jesus, who loved us and gave Himself for us, and compelled by His love, we should live for Him and tell others about Him. Now, in verse 16, Paul continues and says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard Him thus no longer. So Paul says in verse 16, From now on, meaning in light of, of His dying on the cross and us living for Him, from now on, therefore... We regard no one according to the flesh. In other words, according to a worldly point of view. Now this doesn't mean that we regard God's beautiful diversity in creation and his influence, or that we conjure up some type of virtue in being colorblind or throw away nationality, ethnicity, or family ties. In in this book, in chapter 8 and chapter 9, Paul mentions the Macedonians, and the Corinthians aren't the Ephesians. Regarding no one according to the flesh means that first and foremost is not their ethnicity, but how one's soul relates to Jesus. Understand this, there is nothing more important about a person than how they relate to Jesus. People say blood is thicker than water, but that's not true if we're talking about the waters of baptism. We are brothers and sisters in Christ, close to those who are in him like nothing else in this world. I have a brother named Caleb Cunningham that I went to school with and in a seminary. He was raised in a really tough part of Georgia and grew up in a very racist home. His dad told him, you ever bring a black person, specifically a black girl, to this home, I will shoot you and her. A few years A few few years ago, Caleb was saved. And I was in his house one day, had to wash some clothes because I had something going on in the washer and dryer. And I was ironing some things that I didn't want to dry. And he said a few years ago, I would never have had you in my home. Because I would never have a, a black person in my home. But now that the Lord has saved me, I see you as my brother, way more than someone who just has the same ethnicity as me. And that's a great picture of what Paul's getting at here, of not regarding one another according to the flesh. It's not throwing away how God made us, but it's emphasizing how we relate to Jesus and letting that affect above everything, how we relate to one another. The preeminent question in looking at a fellow fellow image bearer is whether they know Christ. And that's our aim in evangelism, to see people go from darkness to light, from bondage to freedom, Not according to the flesh doesn't erase holistically seeing people, but prioritizes seeing them at the soul level. We are to have a gospel view of people. We are image bearers, but depraved sinners who can know God only through Christ. So Paul continues in verse 16. And he says, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. So Paul's saying, that changed my view of people because my view of Christ. Paul seen Christ as a false Messiah. And people see Jesus today as just a good prophet or a rabbi or just a historical first century Jew that was crucified. But to see Jesus not according to the flesh is to see him by faith, as the Son of God, as the Lord, as the Savior King, and to see his beauty in the love that he displayed on the cross in saving our souls and that's how we are to see Christ and in seeing him anew verse 17 therefore if anyone is in Christ he is a new creation the old has passed away behold the new has come paul says if anyone meaning there's no distinctions all sinners can come to Christ is in Christ he is a new creation when the Lord saves us and we're brought into union with Jesus, we are made new. Our old ideas, values, plans, loves, and beliefs are replaced by new life in Christ. Sinners are made new in Jesus. We've been made new, born again. This is not just a new start, but a new heart. Not just a new beginning, but a new nature. Not just a new paint job, but a new engine fuel love. Of Christ. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. My fellow believer, you've been renewed by love. Live like it, and tell others of this transforming love of Christ. And if you're not a Christian here today, new life is offered to you in Christ. Repent of your sin, your sinner before a holy God, and look upon Christ the Savior. Come to Him today. Stop looking at him according to the flesh and behold him by faith. These truths, church, exhort us practically, first, to meditate on the love of Jesus. Every day we must meditate on the love of Jesus through his word and live compelled by his great love. And that's how we'll evangelize from the heart and not out of but motivated by the fear of the Lord and the love of the Lord. We should have gospel fluency with the love of Jesus. Love is a language that everyone speaks. Next time someone asks you, how are you doing? Be honest with them. But say something like, I'm well. I know I'm loved. And watch that strike up conversations about the love of Christ, where you can point them to Jesus and share the gospel with them. And second, this text instructs us to see people holistically, down to the soul level, Because there's nothing more important about a person than how they relate to Jesus. So let's be intentional and observant about the God-given sphere of influence that He's placed us in for the sake of the gospel. So we've seen the first two means of motivation towards our mission. The fear of the Lord and the love of the Lord. And now we come to our third. The stewardship from the Lord. In verses 18 through 21. In verse 18... All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Paul is saying here that the love of Christ that went to the cross, believers being made new, seeing him rightly, all of this is from God. God the Father sent God the Son, initiating and effecting our reconciliation to him. Scripture says that we were dead in sins and trespasses, alienated from God and hostile in mind. 5 verses 10 says that apart from Christ, we are enemies of God. But verse 18, Paul continues and says, Who through Christ reconciled us to himself. Through Christ, God reconciled us to himself. He restored us relationally from estrangement to being his son's. And, daughters. and amazingly, in verse 18, Paul then says, God gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Saints, God could have used angels or just preached the gospel from heaven. But after reconciling us to himself through faith in Christ, he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. The redeemed further the message of redemption. The treasure of the gospel is in jars of clay like us. And notice Paul says, gave us. We're saved individually for sure, but we're made members of the body of Christ, the church. And collectively, we've been given a stewardship from God, being the ministry of reconciliation. That's why it's so fitting to say the Hill Church exists to glorify God by declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ through our lives together. That is our stewardship. Stewardship. And like it or not, Christian, that is the ministry and stewardship the Lord has given you. And Paul explains this stewardship further in verse 19, saying that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. It's only through Christ, through his life, Death and the resurrection of Jesus, Him being the God man. Through Christ, God satisfied His justice and His wrath, but magnified His mercy, love, and grace. It's only through Christ that he reconciled the world to Himself. It's through Christ alone that God restores us to Him, and we become forgiven. But notice the text says, to Himself. And let that tell you that God is the gift of the gospel. Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he may bring us to God. Being forgiven, being saved, being just, being redeemed is great, but it's all to the end of knowing God. This is eternal life, that we know God and Jesus Christ, whom he sent. It's not the streets of gold that make heaven paradise, it's the triune God's presence that is our paradise. God, through Christ, accomplished reconciliation. And in verse 19, by not counting their trespasses against them. And the beautiful thing about the gospel is that God didn't just throw trespasses under the rug. He's too righteous, He's too holy, and He's too just for that. Rather, in His infinite wisdom and holy love, Christ was pierced for our transgressions, and Christ was crushed for our iniquities, and He bore our sins in His body on the tr- God counted our trespasses against Jesus on the cross, tr- so that He can forgive our trespasses, canceling our record of debt of our sin, in the legal de- and the legal demands that stood against us. This is the glory of God in Christ at the cross. And verse 19 finishes with saying that He entrusted to us this message of reconciliation. This glorious news of the gospel. God has entrusted to you and me. He's entrusted to us. God has saved us by this message and entrusted us with it. We must know it because people need it. We're not shysty salesmen just trying to get by people. But we're telling them the very message that they need. In verse 20, it says, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. God making His appeal through us. We're ambassadors for Christ. And an ambassador is an authorized representative in a foreign land on behalf of their home. So we are authorized representatives of Jesus in the foreign land of this world because we're citizens of heaven. You are an ambassador for Christ. You're kingdom and you are to speak his message of hope, reconciliation, and salvation. You are an ambassador for Christ. This is your stewardship. And verse 20 says, God makes his appeal through us. Get the magnitude of this statement. Whenever you appeal to lost souls and you tell them of the gospel, no matter how awkward, no matter how much you fumble or may mess up, there's something supernatural happening because God is making his appeal to their souls through your preaching of the gospel. And then Paul says, we implore you, we implore you, On behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. To implore is what we should be doing. It means to plead, to beg with desperation on behalf of Christ. It's the same Christ who came to seek and save the lost. See, Paul was pleading with with some of you, be reconciled to God. This is a command. Don't respond to this offer of reconciliation with unbelief. And it's not reconcile yourself to God. It's a passive command. Be reconciled to God. Respond to this gospel by faith. Embrace Christ as Savior. 6 verse 2 says, Now is the favorable time. Now, today is the day of salvation. By faith, receive this offer. Come to Christ today if you don't know Him. And when we implore, The gospel to unbelievers, my fellow saints, we have to be clear about four things. Who God is, holy, righteous, and just, but also merciful, loving, and gracious. We have to be clear about who man is, image bearers, but also sinners, stamped and defined by sin, who have committed cosmic treason against their maker and deserve his judgment. We have to be clear about who Christ is. The Savior who came and lived the life we refused to live, died the death we deserved to die in our place and on our behalf, and rose again on the third day in victory, and was ascended to heaven in vindication as the Son of God, Savior, and King. We have to be clear about the response. You must repent and believe upon the Lord Jesus, trusting in Him alone for salvation. This is what we proclaim as ambassadors for Christ. And the motivation is in verse 21 For our sake. He, God the Father, made Him, Jesus the Son, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we become the righteousness of God. Jesus bore our sins as our substitute. And by His grace and through faith in Him, we receive His righteousness. This is the great exchange. Our sins were imputed to Christ on the cross, and His righteousness is imputed to us, accredited to our account. This is the glory of the gospel. And in view of this truth, by way of application, I want to encourage you quickly to biblically align your view of evangelism. See it as a stewardship. See it as an entrustment from God. See yourself as an ambassador for Jesus. Evangelism is just as much a part of the Christian life as praying is, as reading the Bible is, and as fellowship is. And it's an evangelism isn't just a program, a ministry, or, or an event. And it's not a matter of giftedness, but a matter of faithfulness and obedience to this stewardship that God has given us. And we must continue a culture of evangelism at the Hill Church. I've seen it here in my few weeks of being here. We must continue as a loving community committed to, the, to declaring the gospel as an ongoing way of life. Notice how many times in this text Paul says us and we, the engine of evangelism, is the local church. That's why, we must champion, that, that's why we must champion baptism in the Lord's Supper, which displays and proclaims the gospel. We must pray the gospel, sing the gospel, preach the gospel, and lies together, move confidently in the gospel, learning from one another and deepening our gospel unity. This is our call as ambassadors. God has entrusted us the message of reconciliation. This is our call. And we have every motivation being the fear of the Lord, the amazing love of the Lord, and the stewardship we've been given from the Lord. Last words matter. And we see Jesus' last words in Matthew 28. The Great Commission often called, he said to go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them all that I've commanded you. But he led that commandment by the reality of his authority over heaven and earth. And he undergirded it by the promise that he is with us to the end of the age. So as we fulfill this stewardship and this call, let's remember, saints, that Christ is with us. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the gospel. I thank you for saving us. Oh, th- the joy and the knowledge to take Christ seriously. For his great love, we can meditate on you've given us. Help us to be faithful. Help us to obey you. And Lord, we pray... To see sinners come to Christ and help us as saints to become more like him. In Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand with us.